0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.kaldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
1: I'm so glad that you could join us for the closing panel of the Kaldor Centre's annual conference. My name is Lynn Doe, and I'm joining you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge any First Nations people joining us today as well. As someone who spent the last decade working in climate change and whose parents also came to Australia as refugees, This issue of migration, human mobility, and climate are actually quite personally and professionally intertwined. And I've been struck with the depth of conversation that's occurred over the last three days in relation to climate-related mobility. And what does that mean in the context of our work? Whether we're coming at this from a legal perspective, a community perspective, one focused in on climate or one more focused traditionally in on mobility. And I'm very much looking forward as a bit of a um, climate tragic uh, person like at heart and in reality, to further discussing the critical importance of how we address migration and displacement issues in the face of the climate crisis and with COP26, the UN climate change negotiations just around the corner, I couldn't think of a more timely and pertinent um, moment for us to be having this conversation. For our closing panel, will be looking at said climate negotiations in Glasgow, but also beyond as well. What does building support for people moving away from climate change actually look like? What will that require of us as individuals, us in the context of our work, or importantly, us in our demands of government? We'll be joined today by four experts from all around the world in a moderated discussion uh, that I'll be leading. There'll also be an opportunity for you to ask questions though. Um, Most of you will be very familiar with Zoom, but if you're not, there should be a button on your screen that says sort of Q&A. If you click on that, that's where you should be entering any questions that you have. You'll have an opportunity at the end, but if things pop up throughout, feel free to use that function. So without any further housekeeping, please let me um, introduce our speakers to you. So first up, we have Nisreen Al who is the chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. She's also the chair of Sudan Youth Organization on Climate Change and is the general coordinator for the Youth and Environment Sudan platform. Um, As you can see from some of the organizations that she works with, she's obviously got a real focus on young people, but as I recently learned, is also a physicist by background. Up next, we have Alex Randall joining us from the UK, where he is the senior program lead of the Climate and Migration Coalition. For 15 years, he's had a focus on policy and advocacy on climate change, migration and human rights issues at the local, national and international levels, so very relevant for us here today. He's had experience with the UNFCCC process, the Sustainable Development Goals, and also the Global Compacts for Migration and Refugees. Um, We then have Coco Warner joining us. She works at UN Climate Change, where she manages the Vulnerability Subdivision, which is focused on how do we scale up adaptation action. She's been previously a lead author on reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, We try to keep acronyms to a minimum, um, but sometimes they are easier. Uh, If any of your questions are to do with acronyms, we'll do our best to clarify. Um, And she's previously also pioneered work on climate change and migration at the United Nations University. And last up, we have Martijn Wilder, who is the founding partner of Pollination Group, a climate change advisory and investment firm seeking to accelerate the transition to net zero. Prior to this, he was the head of Baker McKenzie's global climate law and finance practice, He has played and continues to play a key role in Australia's clean energy finance institutions but has extensive experience overseas as well. So um, I am sure that you're just hopefully as excited as I am about hearing from these four really sort of varied but deeply um, expert uh, individuals around their thoughts on climate, mobility and most importantly what does that all mean in the context of COP26 and what we have to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. So over the last few days, you've all had the opportunity to listen from other experts, but I guess we'll start with centering things around COP26. I'd love to ask all of you, what do you see as being the most important thing people need to know when it comes to mobility in the face of climate with Glasgow either in the front or the back of your mind? And why don't we start with you, Alex? Hi,
2: everyone. Thanks a lot. I think there are a couple of things that it's really key to keep in mind when we're thinking about climate-linked migration and displacement. And I'm just going to kind of mention a couple of them um, and then maybe say something quickly about COP as well. Um, I think the first thing to... to to really understand is that it's key to grasp the the actual dynamic of how climate change and mobility are connected. Because if we don't understand that properly, then we are very likely to end up kind of moving towards the wrong kinds of policies, the wrong kinds of answers. And I think there are a couple of really key things. The first thing to understand, and I'm sure this has come up a lot over the last few days, is that right now and in the immediate future, most climate-linked movement is going to be internal. People are going to move within their own country, they're not going to cross international borders, and they're very likely to move the shortest distance possible available to them in order to find safety. That's the first thing to to remember. The second thing that I think is really key to understand is that these new patterns of mobility are very likely not to be permanent. People are going to use use migration as an adaptive strategy. They're going to use it as a livelihood strategy, and that may well involve moving, returning, moving with the seasons, moving as particular areas, move in and out of crises. So what we're likely to see is firstly pattern of internal mobility and similarly a pattern of backwards and forwards to and fro circular and seasonal mobility. And that's very often at odds with what people kind of imagine climate linked migration is gonna be like, right? There's this idea that it's going to be across borders from one side of the world to another. So I think it's key to keep that in mind. Um, I think then when we come to COP, the key thing to remember is that COP is one process where climate linked mobility uh, can be can be discussed and can be agreed upon between nations but it's not the only one so i think it's really important to understand what cop can and can't do and to make sure our expectations and therefore our advocacy match the you know the possibilities that can come out of cop so i think the key thing that cop can do around mobility is around finance and i think that's where that that's the heart of the issue right The the process at COP is geared up around dealing with emissions reduction and and finance at its its heart, and I think one key thing that we need to have in mind as we approach COP is how are states which are vulnerable to climate-linked mobility, um, how are they compensated, how is adaptation finance deployed to those countries to help them cope, help them deal with the fact that they are likely to have more people on the move within their own borders.
3: Excellent,
1: thanks for laying that groundwork for us, Alex. Over to you, Coco.
3: Yeah, thanks. And since um, climate negotiations are my day job, thank you so much, Alex. And I'm just gonna um, compliment a few things that you said. Um, Thank you so much again to the organizers for the chance to be with all of you. I think the central idea that I would like to share is that climate change is unfolding. Um, One thing that we're trying to do in the climate negotiations over many, many years, this is a process, not an event, please. um, You notice that Alex said process. This is a process with a series of milestones. Um, And it's really important in your advocacy and and in your work to to realize um, this is a process. I'll get to that in a minute. But the main, I think one of the main ideas that we're grappling with or that I would like to convey to you is that climate change is reorganizing our planetary systems. We're driving anthropogenic climate change, hence the name. And part of this reorganization brings with it redistribution. And we know from history that migration and all kinds of movements. Um, are part of that redistribution. So we have a lot of lessons to learn from history. We have a lot of uncertainty looking forward. And for those of you who are scholars in this field, this is an incredibly exciting as well as concerning time, but climate change will redistribute. And this is really the time when we need to get prepared. So what is the purpose of international climate relations? Well, the foundation, the objective of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions, which drive changes in our atmosphere and all of these uh, forces of redistribution that I just mentioned. So the purpose is to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere at a level that will prevent dangerous anthropogenic climate change. And what dangerous is? The IPCC has, over these many years, been providing greater and greater detail about the risks to humanity and to nature. Um, But that's the point. And this is, again, an ongoing coordination process. So what do you expect at Glasgow? There are three major things that I'll mention. Um, These dovetail, again, with what Alex said, but countries are coming together. It's been five years now since the Paris Agreement. Um, incredible moment when countries came together, agreed on a temperature range that they will aim for in that stabilization of greenhouse gas emissions. They also agreed to enhance efforts that will build resilience. I know that term means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But um, at the core of that is, is this idea that people will react, respond, adjust. Um, And human mobility is part of that. That's been recognized now for at least a decade. Um, So again, enhance ambition, both in mitigation as well as adaptation. One of the challenges with adaptation is the uncertainty. And that's where all of you come in. What do you know? What can you advise decision makers about what people are doing? Um, what are sensible next steps, and how to do that ambitiously and at scale. We're not talking about individual um, important, but individual actions like switching from this or that. All of that is good, and we need a much larger scale of adjustment. So how do we Um, enhance ambition and mitigation and adaptation. That's the first focus. The second. That's
1: really great, Kroger. I might come back to you on focuses two and three in a moment, just so that we get some of the voices of our other panelists in as well. But I am curious to hear what they are and how they dovetail in with what Alex has shared. Um, But maybe we'll go to you next, Martine. Um, I mean, we've already heard quite a lot about like the human mobility aspect of COP26, given some of the work that you do. Are there other issues that people need to be aware of that is coming up as part of this next milestone in, as Coco rightly noted, a process rather than just a singular event? You are on mute, unfortunately, which um, I think we were bound to have that happen at least once.
4: Um, So I think what you, what one hopes will come out of COP very much depends on the perspective at which you're looking at it. So um, I think, you know, there's, it's it's been a, um, obviously, a a long time coming now because of COVID and having, having postponed the previous COP. I think at one level, there are probably a couple of things that are key that I think we see most people quite focused on. One is Article 6. How will Article 6 roll out under the negotiations and will it be resolved? There's a big issue around carbon markets and trading carbon. And why that's important is because a lot of governments now, particularly developing country governments, Are quite focused on how they can generate revenue from their natural capital assets to feed back into funding both climate mitigation and climate adaptation and then through that also funding um, in effect things like um, relocating of communities refugees etc so I think the whole issue of how do you Um, use your natural capital assets and how do you use your other mitigation assets through Article 6 or Article 5 is particularly important and there is a lot, there's been a lot of debate within the global community on this issue over the last 12 months or actually the last two years and so there's a focus on that. The second issue is how you actually and will there ever be any transfer of funding from developed to developing countries. Um, For many of the issues that we talk about, whether it's um, climate refugees, whether it's adaptation, whether it's nature-based solutions, whether it's technology transfer, it's been on the agenda for 30 years and nothing really happens. And that's that's a real challenge. Um, and there's also a big issue, I think, which is coming up, which, which is a philosophical issue, which is that for many of the developing countries that have been very good actors on preserving their, their, their forests, for example, or their nature-based areas. If they were good actors under the existing UN rules and the RED rules, they actually get they actually get penalised. If you're a bad actor who was threatened to remove forests, um, and you then then you cease that activity and start to avoid that, you actually get rewarded. So there's a big momentum at the moment to try to readjust those incentives. And then I think finally there's also just a more general focus about how um, you know people are really going. Going to push through with reducing emissions overall in the mitigation front, and there's there's been a whole um, news article in the last couple of hours about a push behind the scenes to slow down the exit of fossil fuels. Uh, The investment community is pushing that very hard, but if we don't sort of move on that and we try to restrict that, then you'll start to see see things splinter, and we'll never get to the targets that the Paris Agreement outlines.
1: Great, thanks for that, Martine. I think too often the climate community has conversations that are either only about mitigation or only about adaptation, and it's really lovely to have all of our voices here that actually speak to why it's important to mitigate and what that has um, in terms of implications around adaptation. Um, Ms Reen, it'd be really great to hear from you in terms of your engagement with the process. What are some of the significant things that you're going to be focused on? Um,
5: Yeah, I started the climate negotiation back in 2016. Um, I started with gender um, and capacity building and then moved to ACE, which is Action for Climate Empowerment, which is Article 12 in the Paris Agreement. And now since 2018, I'm focusing on um, technology transfer. So I just want to second everything that my previous colleagues mentioned. Um, But a very uh, very important one to highlight is Uh, Climate mobility or climate refugees or um, displacement is not really in the text of the agreements that we have right now. And it will be very hard to find funding instruments to things that are not documented in the technical uh, texts of the negotiations. And I think one of the uh, biggest breakthroughs because uh, Alex mentioned that the COP is one process, but there are other processes. But for example, uh, on the 8th of October, the Human Rights Council announced that now um, violation of environmental uh, protection or environmental health or environmental um, uh, right position in climate change and so on are violations to human rights and I think this is a big breakthrough that we can actually um, highlight and we can actually refer to uh, in the um, next uh, processes. Um, Looking forward to have a similar text or similar resolution from the Security Council because if for, for example, in my case in, in Sudan, uh, this climate mobility or climate refugees or climate displacement is a great driver for conflict. And um, I think it's all interlinked as you and also my colleagues just mentioned. And regarding COP26, I mean, COP26 is a, a big milestone because, yes, in, in, in terms of COPs, it's five years, but actually it's six years. We didn't have one last year, but the climate change did not stop with the COVID. It, unfortunately, we cannot curfew climate change. Um, so if we do not have COP last year, that doesn't mean that we take last year from our counting because unfortunately we're still seeing the impact. We are still seeing uh, the crises of climate change. And for the record, uh, Sudan had its worst flood in hundred years, like a like a, a century uh, in in twenty twenty. So countries were extremely vulnerable, hitted by, uh, by economic crisis, hit by uh, health crisis, which is the pandemic, and then again, hit by climate crises. So it's really high time to have an actual direct link between everything happening. And for me, uh, the key agenda item in COP26
1: will be loss and damage. Excellent, thank you for that, Nazreen, and also the reminder that climate change doesn't really stop for any one process, pandemic, or otherwise. Um, for those of you who are following along with the chat as well, Coco's just added in some extra context around. Paris, um, migration and various adaptation work that you are welcome to take a look at. And I think she's sharing some links that you can read afterwards as well. Um, I just want to pick up on a point that Reen mentioned then, where in many ways, mobility isn't really in the text for what is going to be discussed at COP26. And I guess given that, um, what can we expect in relation to human mobility in Glasgow in the form of commitments either formally within the process or outside of it? Um, Alex or Coco, I don't know if either of you would like to comment there.
2: I think I'll defer to Coco on this one.
3: Yeah, so um, the, the detailed answer we can talk about um, maybe in detail on a side conversation. The, what you want to watch for is you wanna look at the agenda and there are a whole bunch of agenda items. One of those is the report of the Warsaw International Mechanism Executive Committee. The issues right now dealing with human mobility, displacement is right now the, the word, but really they're looking at the full spectrum. All of those appear in the annual report of that committee. So as Nasreen just said, if you're interested in this issue, then you want to follow that that discussion under the wim XCOM. Those are discussions around loss and damage. And particularly, look at that report. That will be the basis of negotiations. The three things that I mentioned, ambition, finance, and implementation, those are the other two, by the way, um, those are all very, very high level. So this particular issue is couched within ambition, um, for example, a little bit of finance and, of course, implementation, but it's not one of the top issues. So look at the XCOM report. I'll put the link in the um, in the chat box.
1: Excellent. Thanks for sharing that link. Um, I'm sure people will be interested in where they can do that further reading and how to follow along with COP26 when this hasn't been really a part of the mainstream media coverage. What are the other key words to be looking out for if this is an area that you're interested in? Um, so maybe picking up on the fact that it isn't a formal part of the text, at least not for the untrained eye. Something that you mentioned, Alex, is that this is only one of many other international processes, given your experience in a a few areas where do you see the greatest opportunity to i guess further progress the conversation around mobility and climate and work towards outcome
2: right so i think i think there are a couple of key places um the first one is the platform on disaster displacement which is a state-led process um creating a, a voluntary agreement on the, the rights of people who are displaced across international borders in the context of climate change. And that's really key because um, it's specifically focused on the connection between climate disasters and displacement. Um, it is a voluntary agreement and a voluntary process, but actually one of the things that I think um, has been really heartening from that process is the willingness of a lot of states to engage with it. Um, so I think that's, I think that's, that's really important. I think the other thing to to remember though is that it's probably a mistake to approach this imagining that there is one process or one event or one international agreement which just fixes this issue right um for a long time that was um that was very much the way the debate was framed you know it was suggested that we needed a completely new international agreement or that the Refugee Convention could be updated or that some other piece of kind of international, you know, process could be could be used to to create the kind of protection that people need. The reality is that we're probably going to end up with a bit of a jigsaw right. Um, there will be, you know, the COP process which is important and will create will we'll create some of the solution. We've got platform on disaster displacement. There's potentially ways that the um, that the sustainable development goals can be used to 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 address this as well. Um, the compact on refugees and migration. All of these things mention climate change, mention mobility, and they can be kind of pieced together to create the answer that we need. But the other key thing is that um, if we remember that so much of this movement is going to be internal, that means that actually. It isn't always a matter of international agreement or international processes. It's a, it's a matter of domestic law um, or domestic policy that governments may well often be um, creating and then managing outside of, of an international process. It will be a matter for, for their civil servants, for their parliaments, for their um, for, for their domestic processes to address this and I think that's a really neglected area is is exploration of how how governments are dealing with this internally as a domestic issue um, as well as focusing on the international processes.
1: Excellent thanks for that reminder and contextualization. Coco. you wanted to add something?
3: Yeah just Alex actually the whole panel everything that you're saying is so good and inspiring um, that focus on national legislation and um helping countries in particular because that's where all of this actually happens helping um, raise awareness figure out what to do next get prepared now is that time in um, in your research your advocacy one thing that is quite a challenge is we have what we have institutions laws frameworks those were built to address 20th century challenges incredibly important Um, so much to learn And yet the challenges that we face now in the 21st century have distinct characteristics. And I think that's one of the really exciting contributions that this community has to make. Um, And of course, it's really important to to build and bring in new thoughts. the 20th century and human mobility will will um, will challenge current institutions. So really just seconding what Alex <laughs> said, there's a lot of work to do and now is now's a great time to do that work. Excellent. Um, I think all of us here have engaged in
1: the UNFCCC process amongst others uh, for a number of years. And I feel some innovation and disruption wouldn't go awry at all. But just coming back to the point that Alex raised around how there's not going to be necessarily any one new process that everything will get resolved at and it'll end up being a bit of a jigsaw and we're going to require some level of domestic action as well. Um, I guess, Martine, for many of our audience here who are Australian, how do you think some of this either intersects with um, our own current migration and sort of refugee policies and is there some opportunity there for how we address this issue domestically here?
4: Um, I think there is, Um, but before I get to that, I just want to um, come back to a point that was raised by, um, by Alex. So one of the problems here, the fundamental problem we have, and I don't want to be sort of uh, put a doubt on this, but no one really cares when it comes to, comes to it, right? So at the end of the day, when we're talking about issues of how do you deal with mitigation adaptation, how do you deal with refugees, all of the promises that are made are largely hollow. So we worked on, the fee- on Fiji's um, for many years on their COP, as, as advisors on the COP presidency. As part of that process, we set up a fund called the Fiji's Climate Relocation Displaced People's Trust Fund. That, that was a fund that was really the world's first fund ever to put money into relocating communities. there already been two communities relocated prior to, in 2017, due to sea level rise. Um, and this fund was, was really meant to be a world first to get money into reallocating communities and really to do it under domestic law. Um, there's been about 42 communities that have asked for government support to move as sea level rise and, and, and salination happens. And and despite launching that at COP and many promises and many in um and many people saying they would like to, you know, to contribute to that, um, the only country that actually con- contributed initially was New Zealand at $2 million. Right. So this is a minor, and that was part of a much bigger package. And at least New Zealand has been contributing significant funding to the Pacific for the purpose of doing that. Um, and so we have a country interesting like Fiji, which has some really innovative domestic law they've just passed a climate change act they had prior to that what was called an ECAL and an environmental climate change adaptation levy where 10% of high end tourism would go into that fund that was a highly successful fund 10% um, it, it raised about 150 million dollars a year could put to, be put towards climate adaptation but obviously with COVID and the destruction of tourism the country's now you know some eight billion dollars in debt um, and unless you get rid of that debt, it's a very hard thing just to, to find money. So it becomes entirely reliant upon aid. So I think in many, for, an Australian, for Australia, for the government, who is surrounded by many of these communities where they're low-lying low, low Pacific islands and where issues of climate refugees and sea level rise are absolutely critical, the government needs to be doing far more in the Pacific, um, for example, to be helping governments like Fiji and others do, deal with this issue. Um, I think in Australia, you know, we have our own issues in in the Torres Strait Islands, where a number of islands there are often flooded and um, become for periods uninhabitable. We have areas of Australia which will become uninhabitable and there will be migration, but there's no real sort of comprehensive plan or thinking around that we're too busy at the the moment, fighting about whether we should even commit to a target. Let alone how we should be dealing with climate change properly, so I think one of the other challenges in Australia is that. Even when there is what I would call you know impacts of adaptation up on the north coast of New South Wales around Byron Bay we've had a lot of um, coastal erosion, a lot of houses going into the sea. And quite often, you end up in a position where the government says it's just easier to hand out money. So, no one will ensure ins- it, nothing will be done. There's no plan. It's just a matter of the government says, oh, well, the politics of this look bad. We don't associate um, sea level, um, st- st- we don't associate storm damage with eroding coastlines, we just see it as just natural rather than climate change. So we'll just write a check and and be done with it. So these are, you know, we have to first of all, acknowledge that climate's a real issue and we have to find new mechanisms to get money flowing and aid flowing to our neighbors who desperately are trying to deal with this issue.
1: I think that's a really good point. And sometimes it's not our neighbours, but actually Australian citizens. um, 350 Australia is running a really great campaign supporting Torres Strait communities that if our audience haven't checked out yet, it's uh, called Our Islands, Our Home. Um, That's something that's really worth throwing your weight behind and supporting what does, you know, internal displacement when it comes to climate change looks like even on the shores of Australia. Um, That's a really interesting point around like the Fiji example that you gave and how it you know, at that international level, didn't necessarily get the support that was required. Um, I'd love to hear from our other panelists if there are other, I guess, interesting or slightly unusual from just these international processes that you've seen in terms of how countries or like other types of organizations are responding to this challenge of migration and climate that is. Maybe Rain. I don't know if you have an example that you'd like to share with us. Yep. So I kind of agree and
5: disagree with um, the previous statement of Alex that it's mostly going to be domestic um, migration. Uh, It might be in countries that have space, actually, and the countries that are actually um, a landlock or a landmass. But most of the coastal areas or the coastal cities or the coastal islands, for example, Sri Lanka, for example, uh, Bangladesh. Bangladesh will lose third, um, like a third of its mass, its land, because of the la- uh, raise of the sea level, and I don't think the rest of Sri Lankan land can actually, uh, sorry, Bangladesh land can actually hold the rest of the population. Um, in Sudan, on another hand, Sudan is a big country with a modest population comparing to the land we have, but third of Sudan is currently a desert, so even this land or this mass land is completely useless um, for, for a, a, a community that's actually nature-based, agriculture or pastoral communities. Um, we made a survey in Sudan in 2018, and 80% said they will cross the Mediterranean to Europe illegally, even if they know that there is 90% of chance of dying in the Mediterranean and not reaching Europe. And for me, these 80% have a suicidal actually um, behavior because if you know that there is a 90% chance um, that you will not succeed and you will not be able to cross the Mediterranean, and yet you will do it, um, this is suicidal. And when we ask them, but then why are you going to take this chance and this risk? Even 90% is a big. A chance that you will not make it there, and they said we are dead anyway. Um, if if we are here and we cannot have water, we cannot have grasses for our cattle, we cannot have way of living, uh, and also uh, if if, uh, if if we are crossing the and if we did not have any ways of supporting our lives, then we are dead. And we if we cross the Mediterranean. When we are also dead, so at least we are trying we're not staying in one place. Um Luckily this this percentage dropped in 2019, um, but not significantly, and I think. Uh, when it comes to climate change, and when it comes to communities like our communities, it's a matter of really alive or dead, um, and 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 it's really matter of of on not only that, but it's a matter of dignity for them because uh, these these people used to carry themselves, they used to have food from themselves. They don't want to depend on humanitarian aid because we already have many camps in Sudan because of um, uh, uh, the, the the situation in South Sudan, the situation in Ethiopia, the situation in Eritrea the situation in all of the surrounding countries and the situation in Sudan itself since we had um, th- th- more than 20 years of, 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 uh, of civil war in the Western states. Um, so they don't want to have this life and um, they will not stop. They will not stay in one place. They m- must move because humans are survival uh, creatures. So yeah, it's it, kind, it will kind of be domestic until uh, a certain extent, but it will always uh, return to the natural thing which is the international one, and it will mostly be Europe also, especially for the African continent.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Rain, um, and being willing to disagree with what other panelists are saying. I think that's what makes for lively discussion, but also a really important reminder of the word here that it's not just migration, but it's forced migration, and it's forced migration due to climate change. Um, and when it does become a matter of life or death, and certainly about dignity, um, these are important things, even though it might, f- feel for some who maybe are newer to this a little bit more abstracted to be reminded of the reality of the individuals that might um, be facing this. Now, Alex, um, rather than directly replying to this rain, I know that the Climate and Migration Coalition recently released a report about the role of refugee and migrant led organizations. And I'd love to hear, I guess, what type of innovation or different type of perspective that might offer us in the challenge
2: yeah so we um, we conducted some some interview research with migrant and refugee led organizations, and really what we wanted to try and understand was um, the the barriers and the driving forces that mean that some refugee and migrant led organizations are engaged in the debate about climate change and are um, kind of creating and developing their own kind of climate change projects, um, but also the reasons why um why sometimes they're they're not and and we 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 interviewed 12 organizations from across across the world um to try and kind of tease these these ideas out and um the 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 conclusions were really interesting and what we found was that um so we, we were speaking to organizations that are, you know re- refugee migrant organizations that are doing you know the kind of pioneers that are doing climate change work um and the the results were fascinating. And what we found was that for organisations in the global north, from kind of um, wealthier countries, their their motivation was that they saw themselves as as part of a of a long history of the protection of migrant and refugee rights. They saw their organisations as part of a um, you know a movement stretching back um, you know into the 20th century to the kind of aftermath of the Second World War. And what they saw. Um, and the kind of motivating force for for then kind of starting climate change projects was they, that they saw climate change essentially as as the latest and biggest threat to those hard won gains that they had worked for um, over over the over the last decades. Um, what we what we found in the answers from the organisations in in the global south was was quite different. Um, and their motivation, the driving force often behind their climate change projects, um, was uh, a feeling that you couldn't separate these issues out, right? That for for them and their organizations and the people that they were working directly with, climate change and mobility, um, the environment and, and people moving, um, disasters and displacement just weren't separate issues in the way that they maybe are for Western organizations or organizations in the global north where it's very easy, and I say this as you know, someone from a, from a northern country who kind of deals with these issues quite theoretically, it's, it's maybe easier for me to kind of detach these things from each other and say, oh, this is a climate change issue, this is a migration issue, and theoretically, because I'm not dealing directly with them myself, to to kind of see them as, as completely different things. But for the organizations in the South that were dealing kind of very directly with the impacts of climate change, um, their their reason for working at that nexus between climate change and migration was simply that these were not different issues.
4: I just just can't just jump in for one sec? I mean I think I mean I think um the issues are connected but I just don't think the connection's always made. So if you take what's happening with I mean, with water, nature, and climate, right? So you take water, what's happening in California, you take sea level rise, what's happening in Florida, you take um, what's happening in Cape Town with respect to water, you take what's happening in many countries around the world that are actually running out of water, those cities will become, within the next few years, uninhabitable, right? It's happening quickly. I think people just are not seeing how fast things are coming and how things are changing that quickly. So I think, um, you know, what's really interesting about this is that, you know, it's all tied together, as you say, Alex, you know, and even when you're talking about um, uh, one of the key reasons to protect forests and rainforests around the world, apart from the climate angle, is because they are the homes of many of the world's Indigenous communities, and you need to basically protect those forests, and that then ties you in, and then also, if you destroy these rainforests, In many parts of the world, that destroys global agriculture because the rainfall patterns are destroyed. So to me, it's a lot of the connectivity between these issues that is often misunderstood um, and is not being put together. And, um, you know, people, you're right, people do see them as disconnected, but I don't think they see the bigger picture. And I think that is where where some of these these ecosystem changes are going to simply break down and we're going to face fundamental challenges that we're going to have to deal with
1: that's very true. Um, just a reminder to our audience that after my one more question, I'll be throwing over to you. So feel free to ask your questions. Coco's been doing a stellar job answering some of them already, but we'll also try to answer some of them live as well. Um, so the last question that I have, well, not really the last, the, the, the last for now, um, and welcome any of you to chime in, is just, I guess, building on what Martine just said there, is that So we here know that these issues are interconnected and interconnected with many other um, sort of social, environmental and economic issues as well. But how do we help other people that don't yet see those connections or don't yet see that bigger picture? Like what's the narrative change that is needed and how could we be um, pushing that forward? Or if you have suggestions of like better practices for our audience, I'd really love to hear because I think that's a very tangible thing that people would love to walk away from today with. Yeah, I
5: can jump on this. Um, So I think we can learn from the journey of climate change um, acknowledgement itself. First of all, we had hundreds of climate denials and actually thousands, hundreds of thousands. (laughs) And um, some believers invested in research and in scientific uh, evidence. Now we have more research outside about climate change and we have also more people speaking about climate change and automatically more people started to believe in climate change, not, not only because of the science, but because also because we we, we clearly see the, the impacts of it. So I think the first step also to speak about um, mobility or dis- uh, displacement uh, and its relationship uh, regarding uh, climate change and the drivers for that is to invest inside and research, first of all, and secondly, to speak more about it, Um, there are windows opening regarding uh, displacement and climate change or human mobilities and climate change or migration and climate change, yet I don't think these windows are enough to to make a a propaganda, let me say, uh, and to make it very obvious on their faces that um, climate change is happening and it's causing mobility, it's causing displacement, it's causing migration and it's happening Uh, whether you like it or not, because we have this evidence, we have this evidence, and we have this evidence. So investing in science and talking more and more about this interlinks and about this combination and about this um, relationship between the two events is really key and really assets. Also, um, like networking, because now um, Alex just answered the question of the work of the um uh, migration networks in the south and in the north and i think there is a big community that actually cares about this issue, but they don't have this um, proper communication among themselves. So networking is also a great uh, step and a great way of doing it. Uh, my last recommendation will also be um, to uh, some sort of, of, of using media, because media, not, not only, so, not only the, the traditional, but also social media, is a very great uh, tool and a very great way to reach more people. And more people understanding the issue and and the connection between the the different topics and the this interlinkage more more believers we had and more actions oriented discussions we will have thank you very much
1: excellent thanks for those tangible answers and i think coco i saw you maybe almost come off mute there would you like to share something
3: yeah and then i just got so entranced with what you were saying mystery that's good um We've been thinking a lot about climate change, and you'll see all kinds of different approaches in the media, for example. Um, Alarmism to it's bad, but wait, it doesn't have to be bad, to everything's going to be fine. We have this solution, whatever. Um, I've been thinking a lot, and in fact, I just grabbed a bunch of books right here, many books, um, about what causes collective behavioral change, and certainly people moving is a collective behavior. People, of course, often gravitate towards where their cousin has gone or where diaspora communities are. So I think the more that we can understand about the dynamics of complex collective behaviors, um, the more effective as a community we will be in helping institutions prepare, people prepare and see their options. Um, So I've put a few thoughts in Um, in the margins about what's needed. And my sense is it's a bit of a rethink. It's thinking, well, what is the desired thing? Who would do that desired thing? Who would the audience be? Talk to that audience. Don't talk to everybody, but talk to that target audience and understand what do they need and what, what can be helpful. Use measurement and analytics to see if things are changing create compelling messages for that target audience. That's all actually very far away from migration and climate change research, but actually probably needs to be a greater part of what we're doing together to keep people safe, to make sure that people have what they need to adjust to the climate impacts that are around them. That may include human mobility. Um, It may include other things, but I think we need to rethink about how we Think about impacts talk about them and measure them Excellent. when it comes um, to human behavior
1: it sounds like there's quite a lot of interdisciplinarity there um, that could definitely be explored both by academics but also practitioners as well um, and it sort of dovetails almost nicely into an audience question that we have which is are the voices of the actual affected communities, whether they're in the global north, within certain countries, but more specifically within the global south, actually being heard in this conversation at the moment? And if not, how do we amplify them? What is the role of all of us who's attending this conference right now? Maybe, Alex, I think you were about to come off mute just then. Um, so I'm going to throw this question to you first.
2: Um, I'd say broad, broadly, um, if you look at this, debate in the global north and you look at what's being said by actors in the global north or the west or whatever we, we want to call it, developed countries, um, yeah, the voices of affected communities are really not part of that debate and I sort of feel acutely conscious of my of myself, my own position here as someone who grew up in a northern country as a white guy talking about this issue, um, but yeah, it's true. the the voices of those communities are not particularly part of this discussion um and i think the the risk of that i mean firstly it's you know it's an it's a it's an ethical problem like how is this debate unfolding without the presence of those communities and those voices that's like you know simply kind of not how this should be playing out but also the solutions to these um, issues are usually hyper local right like you can't you can't just kind of come up with an answer and apply it universally across the world to every single place where this where where climate change and mobility are, are connected so there's really no way that the kind of right the right solutions the right answers the correct policies whatever level we're working at there's really no way that those answers can can be reached without the experiences, the voices, context that comes from um, from the people who are directly impacted by climate change, from the experiences of people who are already on the move because of climate change. And that that is a huge problem.
1: Excellent, thank oh, Martin. Um, before you go, audience, please ask more questions. Otherwise, I'll be uh, providing my own questions, and that would be great for me, but maybe not for you. Martin, you were going to say.
4: Um, in, my, in my view, there's a two-track process going on, right? So there's the process going on between governments and between at the UN level, et cetera, which is talking about policy. Um, and with all due respect to everybody, it, it is not really changing things that much. Um, yeah, the, the, when you add up the NDCs and action on the ground, it's, a, it's, it's well behind where we need to get to. And at the rate we're going, we're going to get 3%, 3.5% by 2050. So we're not going to get there. The second track is actually what is happening, and it is quite exciting, which is that, at a global investment community, things are moving incredibly fast, much faster than governments. And in Australia, the investment community um, is well ahead of governments in terms of what they want to do. So, so the, decision, the decision has been made in most developed and developing countries to exit coal. There are a few, there are a few countries that are still still looking at that, but on the whole, that is where the money has gone, there will be no more, in the next few years there'll be no more investment for any new coal. Um, Similar things happening on oil and gas, the IEA is saying a similar thing. There's a huge huge amount of money going into renewable energy and a lot of that is happening in developing countries. A huge amounts of focus on renewables in countries like Morocco, Indonesia, um, a lot in, in, in Latin America. Those fundamental changes will ultimately drive a shift in the global economy and they will ultimately mean there'll be less emissions. Um, And this shift is driven by a couple of things. One, by investors wanting more disclosure, uh, which we've seen around the task force financial disclosure. We're now seeing a significant focus on nature with a task force on nature risk. And you you need to also then start to applying that to people risk and mitigation risk. But at the moment we've gone from investor risk the next thing is is nature risk. We've now got to think a lot more about human risk, which we're not thinking, and also human health, which is a forgotten part of the climate debate. So in my mind, where all of I mean, things are moving so fast on the investment side, and the technology side, um, that, can, that there is real hope there. And I think that while the UN process sort of stumbles along and it will stumble along, the, the real activity is coming at that probably more so in the, in the last six months than any, than any other time in that space. And Um, I think that's, that is sort of cause for optimism. Okay.
3: Thank you. Yeah, and and thank you so much, Martin. I agree with you and I I politely disagree since we're in this world of diplomacy. Um, I'd encourage all of us to think of not either or, but you know, working together, and you're absolutely right, we've been doing this climate negotiations thing for 30 years, which seems like it's probably more than some of you have even lived. <laughs> um, and yet it's a joint effort and one of coordination. And it's just so helpful to hear from different sectors, wonderful comments that you just said, Martin, about what's needed, what needs to be unlocked. You emphasized a lot of things that need to happen around COP26 to unlock um, market Potentials, for example. Um, So, for the audience, I hope that you can see broadly the point of international coordination is exactly that. Um, It doesn't always happen very smoothly. And it's so encouraging, Martin, uh, Martin, to hear you also speaking of some things that are happening anyway in the world at a very quick pace. We all need. Um, that energy to keep, uh, not to give up because tomorrow's another day and it is not the last moment for humanity. We will keep working as long as we're breathing.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, Part of me is disappointed. We've only had two on-air disagreements so far, Uh, but I think there has been like a fair amount of consensus around what we've been hearing from our panelists, certainly around the need for these issues that are sometimes talked about as being separate or sometimes siloed into, well, you're the migration expert, you're the climate person sticking your lane. I think people are very, um, for whatever reason, unfortunately, good at being territorial. Given that, I guess I'd love each of you to close off with, what is it that we could be doing better Then, um, particularly from your perspective uh, there might be people in the audience that you know are from the investor community are from a global north or a global south organization may already be an expert and actively working on this or not what do we need to take away and do differently in order to actually have these issues be much more interconnected in how we both talk and work on it. And not just this, it's either going to happen domestically or globally, but again, interlinking the two. So I'm going to go with, um, I'm sorry, alphabetical order, Alex, I saw you look away, but alphabetical order it is.
2: So I think um, the key emerging issue, as I see it at this nexus of climate change and migration is about the rise of the border industries and the border security industry which is looking at this as a new opportunity for profit and i find that extremely worrying extremely worrying indeed Um, so for me that's the key um the key worry and the key thing that needs to be challenged what we've seen over the last few years is, is the issue of climate change and mobility has gained traction in the media Um, The businesses, the industries that run um, for-profit border detention centers, for-profit border surveillance, um, the tech and AI industries that conduct um, remote surveillance at borders have swooped into this space and are looking at the potential of cross-border mobility and government's desire, primarily northern government's desire to prevent that mobility as an opportunity for profit. And... That obviously, to me, uh, feels like absolutely the wrong solution. We should be opening borders, allowing people to move, creating safe legal routes for people to move from one country to another. Um, But unfortunately, there is a huge amount of money, huge amount of investment stacked around preventing people crossing those borders. And to me, um, our next task is challenging that apparatus, challenging that border industrial complex.
1: Um, it sounds a little bit like the prison industrial complex so there's a few parallels there aren't there um i feel like that is a whole separate conversation that i'm very keen to have afterwards but coco you are next up in my alphabetical order list
3: wow that's um this has all been so compelling and i'm taking inspiration from all three of you as panelists and and such nice questions lynn um for me, I think what we need is imagination about what's going to be needed in the future. So Martin, for example, emphasized, as well as Alex and Nasreen, we're in interconnected systems. Welcome to the 21st century. There's so many things now that are more deeply interconnected than we realized before. We need scenarios based on what people need. Um, If you take a country like where i'm from you can you know where i'm from i'm from the us um things that affect people moving let's say in the pandemic where we can work virtually aren't things necessarily studied in this particular community you're looking at municipal bonds real estate zoning just to name three we need scenarios about what people need jobs as well taxes etc all of the things that make a place habitable and safe Including climatic conditions. We need scenarios and broad based conversations um, that aren't so much focused on, on a lot of conversations now, are focused on, you know, maybe a lot of people will be coming to where you live. And that maybe is quite uncomfortable given how politicized these issues are. I think we need to focus on what do people need and some scenarios that involve all of these different stakeholders. Um, to unlock imagination about what needs to be done now and sequenced over the coming couple of years. I think that would be very helpful.
1: Um, that's a great reminder. And I quite like your framing that we're using 20th century institutions to solve 21st century challenges, that if we go at a very glacial pace, we may as well be thinking about what is possible in the 22nd century um, and what should we be aiming for there. So, Martine, you are next.
4: So I'm just going to answer one of the questions at the same time in my response which was from Brian who asked who are the investors and and what is happening. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So over the last six months we've had many institutions come out with very large financial commitments to to invest in in technologies and transformations that will help address climate change. So the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, Tamasek, um, along with BlackRock, one of the biggest asset managers in the world, has recently committed um, a, a billion dollars towards a decarbonisation effort. Um, TPG with RISE, which is um, largely headed by the former US uh, Treasury Secretary, Frank Paulson, has come out with a $7 billion target, of which they've already raised $4.5 billion towards investing in this space. Brookfield have just released, have just announced a $12.5 billion investment target towards putting money in this space. General Atlantic, another $4 billion, um, the, the business that we're involved in has done joint venture with HSBC, targeting $6 billion for nature and indigenous communities. So there are a lot of people at the moment that are trying to, and Tom Steyer, again in the US, has just announced a very major fund to look at, at this. So we're seeing a wall of capital come. The challenge for this wall of capital is threefold. One, they cannot find things to invest in. Number two, on the adaptation front, adaptation doesn't pay. And on the nature front, nature doesn't pay. So what, what we need to do is to make sure that when that money is invested, it does so in a way that not only helps address climate change, but it meets multiple objectives. So whether that's dealing with migration, adaptation, um, nature-based solutions, that, that the capital that is being allocated is educated as to how to direct that money to make the best outcome for the planet. Another example of that is Bezos with his Amazon fund, a billion dollars pledged. Um, and a lot more coming, so we need to make sure that these billionaires, who want to allocate money to the planet, actually allocate it in the right way, spend it in the right way, get outcomes in the right way, and are actually held accountable for the commitments they make. It's very easy to make these global commitments a capital, but unless we hold them to account, the money doesn't flow properly, is my experience.
1: Oh, I think that's a really great reminder. And today, Mike Cannon-Brooks, another one of Australia's billionaires, just pledged $1.5 billion to additional projects. And yeah, I think there's a fair amount to be followed up on there. Um, Nisreen, lucky last, over to you.
5: Thank you. Um, Okay, so I will wear the government hat. I've never worked for the government, but I know what governments are actually facing. Um, Well, I wish if opening the borders is as easy as it sounds right now, because in Sudan, we are host for more than I think the numbers are talking about four to three million uh, refugees and uh, and also IDPs from inside, but uh, in different communities. And this actually um, have a great pressure on the economy, on the uh, natural resources, on the services distribution and on everything, literally. Because, um, I mean, opening, I mean, the idea of borders as it was before is, I know that these are my people, so as government, I'm responsible to provide services for them, okay? And in many cases, in many, many cases, these governments, especially the developing countries or the least developed countries, doesn't provide enough services to their people, their people in the first place, and not mentioning also hosting other um, refugees from other countries. And um, and if we really want an and an, an world where we can open borders, then we should also do that with resource, with wealth, with GDPs, with everything, and with services, education quality, I mean, we have to have equality in everything before we can actually open the borders, Um, because as a refugee, for example, or as a migrant or as a displaced person, I will rather go to a better place than go to um, a lower income country that doesn't even have enough uh, to feed their people yet. Sometimes it's the only option to come to such a country, for example, Sudan. Um, And not mentioning that these governments are already impacted by the climate change Issues because in Sudan, for example, again, seventy uh, percent of our out, uh, like our resources and our outcomes are agricultural or pastoral based, which is already a sensitive um, income, climate-sensitive incomes. So there's a lot of pressures on the developing countries or the least developing countries' government itself, and and to solve this problem, we really need to have that equal world that everything is equal. And I don't think the world leaders are ready yet, especially the developed countries want to um, to do this. Thank you. very And and also this takes us to the colonialism, this takes us to the equity uh, of of wealth sharing and and there is a lot of things that all interlink together because before we can actually put in table such a bold idea as open borders between uh, different countries. Thank you very much.
1: Thank, Nazreen. I feel like in our closing panel, we have generated enough future potential topic areas that the Kaldor Conference has uh, the follow-up very much well planned already. Um, I just want to thank our panellists for really sharing your perspectives, being willing to disagree, being very generous with your perspectives about what it is that we could be doing. Um, You all offered really profound and I think great insight around what we could be taking away as an audience. So, thank you very much. But as this is the closing panel, um, I'd like to Pass over to Jane McAdam.
0: Thanks very much, Lynn, and thanks to all our panelists for such a spectacular closing event. Um, I really think that was a a wonderful way to to cap off what has been a a really successful virtual conference. So, my thanks to all of you, and of course, to all the speakers and chairs for the other sessions and the audience. Um, Without you, of course, Um, we'd really just be talking to ourselves. So thank you for your participation. It's been terrific. Um, And we've had a lot of engagement too with the videos that are already up on the conference website. I'd particularly like to thank our sponsors for the conference too. Our premier sponsor, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, as well as law firms Slater & Gordon, Hall & Wilcox, Norton Rose Fulbright, Veress, and Watton & Kearney for their sponsorship. And it's extraordinary to have um, so many of you, as I said, joining us and and being part of this and many other of our events. Um, We're so grateful for you across the world um, to to be with us to discuss issues as important as this one. I'd also like to um, express my gratitude to the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales, which has provided enormous support as well and to members of the Caldor Centre, without whom this really couldn't have happened. I'd, I'd like to acknowledge in particular our interns, Sam Pride and Akriti Shuri for their help with this event and the core team behind the scenes, Lauren Martin, Francis Voon, and special thanks to Francis Nolan, who has really been there in the background with um, all the sessions, prepping the speakers beforehand, doing tech checks. It's, it's been tr- a tremendous group effort. So thank you very much. I think this conference has showcased the challenges of mobility in the context of climate change and disasters, as well as the opportunities that are there to be seized. As has been stressed throughout, this is not just an issue of the future, but an issue of the here and now. We have heard from a diverse range of experts from affected communities, international organizations, government, civil society, and academia, but all are united in a common purpose, That is to ensure that those affected by the impacts of climate change and disasters can retain their agency, their dignity and the ability to stay in their homes when they wish, but to have options to move out of harm's way. With COP26 next month, we hope that our conference has contributed to the global call to action on climate change and climate justice. The Caldor Centre will continue to work on climate change disasters and mobility as a priority area for both our research and engagement into the future and we hope that you'll join us on our mission. I therefore invite you to keep in touch with us by joining our mailing list and following us on social media. We look forward to seeing you at another event in the future, hopefully in person. Thank you very much.